Grace and, grace and peace is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. We're going to have the sermon here early in the service and, and fin finale with the Lord's Supper. You see that uh, acrylic statue plaque there? That was, that was sent to the home of one of our Wells pastors in uh, just north of the Dallas-Fort Worth area in Keller. His name is Paul Sager. His wife does big events for Jerry Jones and Dirk Davinsky and Cowboy, members of the Dallas Cowboy football team. She's an event coordinator. She's a, a personal friend to the Jerry Jones family. And that came to their house just for a football game that was going to be played at AT&T Stadium two years ago, uh, middle of the season. It says Gene and Jerry Jones and then the other names of the kids and their wives request the honor of your presence on the 50-yard line in the owner's suite for the game where, get this, you Wisconsin-scented people, the Dallas Cowboys play the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> he got to sit. He, by the way, he's from Milwaukee, loves the Packers, and got to sit with Jerry Jones and company for that. that uh, not right with them. Jerry Jones sits like one level below them and comes up a little bit to visit. But he got, he got this kind of invite. And, and he, he was sharing it with me, and I said, oh, not only is that a really special invite, but what a great sermon illustration. Well, I'm stealing it tonight. <laughs> An invite to watch with the game with the owner. Um, did you go? Well, of course I went. And he said, and the Packers spanked the Cowboys. And they were, all of the Packer fans, which were half the people attending the game, were toward the end of the game and still the game was going on, were saying, go Pack, go, go. And he was like, almost joined them and then he realized where he was. He's up there with the Cowboy fans, the owner. What an invite. I never got one like that. More locally, though, some of you know this gal because you've been members here a while. She's in glory now. She donated that, that beautiful piano to our church. Elsie Partey used to invite 10 or 12 couples. She joined our church in the, her 80s, but she had always been a, a member and then the president of and trustee of the Austin Women's Club. And the, at least five times while she was able to do it. She would invite 10 or 12 couples to a luncheon. And man, did she put on the dog. And it was, I, I mean, Elsie, I think, was, was born a Southern Belle with a, a silver spoon in her hand. And she made, she made uh, talking about cutting the grass a grand experience. And uh, I always felt a little bit out of place. You know how rough and tumble I am. And I'd whisper to Mary, do I grab that pork or that pork? Right. But I always was realized that I was probably invited because of my position more than my 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 style because I was so blue collar in a way. But I I cherish those invites. I can tell you through the place different places she sponsored those. It was pretty fun. Maybe the feelings that Pastor Sager that I mentioned had, or the feelings that I had are a little bit what the disciples had the more and more they thought about being invited to the Passover with Jesus, their master. I hope they felt a little out of place. 
Passover is like a big Thanksgiving dinner. Passover is usually reserved for family and closest friends. Passover usually had enough people to eat the lamb completely gone that was sacrificed for the group. So it was almost always what I like my Elsie Parte story, 10 or 12 couples types. Jesus had 12 disciples. Well, really, he had 11 because one had hardened his heart and was no longer a disciple of Jesus in his heart at all. And yet he got invited. The best invite ever to go to the Passover supper with Jesus Christ. The last supper that night. We're going to read the event as it's, it's uh, recorded in Mark, and we're going to observe how wonderful an invite it was for a gracious Savior to invite all of the disciples, including Judas, and we'll find ourselves invited as well. So go with me to that story. Advance that slide, David. Come and dine with Jesus. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. This would be Thursday that year, the 14th day of the month of Nisan. Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, and I'm going to break away from the reading and just say, go to Simon's house. That's where you ought to go. Did you notice he didn't name anyone? We're going to talk about that. That's kind of curious. He sent two of his disciples telling them, Go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. Let's start with that. Why, why not just name the fellow? This does sound a little bit familiar to what happened a few days earlier at Palm Sunday when he said, go to Bethphage and you'll see a, a, a donkey and a donkey's colt. And if they ask you, what are you doing? Say, the Lord needs it. And they'll let you take it and tell them you'll bring it back and after the parade. And, but, and, they'll just, and then he rode on a donkey that had never been ridden. There is, there is a... a, a a sense of the Messiah as the God-man, who is God, here, as he says, he doesn't say he's made prearrangements with the owner of the house, but he's, apparently the owner of the house would know who the teacher is because there were followers in their hearts of Jesus listening to his teachings. So Jesus knew who it was that if he, a man heard that the teacher Jesus wanted to use his house, that it would be an automatic yes, an assumed yes. A man that had a, an upper room that was big enough for this group where the breezes would flow because that's where they would have their family room. The tables were not tall like European tables. They were more like coffee tables. You'd recline on cushions. You, you'll see a guy carrying a water jar. That's not the owner of the house. That's a servant or a friend or a hired hand that is fetching water for the house because you had to do that every day. You didn't have it all tapped in. You'll see someone doing their daily work, and you follow them. That's part of that divine nature of Jesus. You're going to see that. You follow them and then talk to the owner of the house. But why not just say, 
go to 2406 Fifth Avenue, downtown Jerusalem at the house of Simon. I, I never really thought of this on my own, but I've, today and yesterday reading commentaries, these, these men are saying, he, if you look at the verses right above this, it says Judas was making plans with the chief priest to betray Jesus and got 30 pieces of silver. The next verse is jumps from past Wednesday to Thursday night. This, it's this, this first verse of this text. So if you look at the writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all do this, what I just said. You look at the way it's written, it's like showing you that Judas is moving forward to betray Jesus and the Jewish leaders to arrest him when the crowd is not around so they can not be mobbed for arresting him and they can get him in trouble and get him dead. And Judas is cooperating, so Jesus keeps Judas from messing up the Passover and the Lord's Supper. The thought is, if Judas heard him say, it's on 5th Street, it's Simon's house, and I'm just picking the name Simon, that Judas could say, ah, I'll catch up with you guys later and go get the Pharisees and the chief priests and the guards and come there. It would mess up the whole Last Supper, right? But I do think there's a, that, and, and these commentators talk about this too, a more, even more sacred reason to keep Judas from messing it up. Yeah, but to, keep, to give Judas one last chance to be with Jesus intimately while he shows his ownership of Judas, his understanding of how Judas is operating and his wanting to call him out to save his soul. To give him, show grace to Judas. And if Judas did mess it up, he would keep himself from that moment. So they get there, they all file in, and they, they start what is the, the Lord, the, the, this Passover meal. The Passover meal is, has, is, has a ceremony that goes with it. The ceremony isn't talked about very much in Acts, I mean, excuse me, in Exodus when it was first God commanded it. But over the years, and the rabbis had many writings that predate Jesus, they developed a, a Passover ceremony, a lot like we, but much more than what we have when we have before and after dinner prayers. They, but they had pass, uh, eight parts to the Passover meal as they passed the bitter herbs, and then they, they passed the wine, they passed the water, and they passed the lamb, and they talk about the, what is the meaning of the Passover? The Lord brought us out of Egypt and the angel of death passed over our house and Messiah is coming and at some point they get up and go to the door to see if Messiah is there and he's not there yet and there's a place at the table that's for Messiah that's empty. I wonder how that went with Jesus and them and because uh, he's there. And they, they do this Passover ceremony but at uh, around eight, the eighth part, the last and ninth part is relaxing, and eating all the food. And now you know when it says, while they were eating, what I'm about to read, when they finished all of the Passover uh, proper, while they were eating, Jesus said something. So let's get there, okay? Uh, the disciples left and went into the city, found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve while they were reclining at the table eating, they're past all of those eight parts. He said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. 
one who is eating at the table. Remember, the Judas passage comes before this text, and then Jesus calls him out. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. That the, they're, what they're saying is, the thought didn't even cross my mind that I would betray you. But they know this Jesus is, early, you know, he, he, earlier he's shown them their weaknesses. They, they're saying, I, I, am I the one that's so weak that this is going to happen? That I would betray you? Surely it's not me. There is a guy in the room, Judas, though, that not only had the thought crossed his mind, but he completely followed it, hardened his heart, decided Jesus is no Messiah at all, and he's going to do it. Now, imagine how far away Judas feels from those other 11 as he hears them one by one, incredulous that it could possibly be them. And he knows it's him. That's meant to expose his heart to him. Jesus could have just said, hey, there's a guy here that's going to betray me, and it's you, Judas. But instead, he said, one of you is going to betray me. And he squeezed out of them this honest question, and Judas got to hear all of these men. They're not innocent of sin, but they're innocent of betrayal. And it confronted Judas. The prophecy, there's only one in the whole Old Testament, is in, is in the Psalms. It's a prophecy that says a, a person, a friend of mine that ate with me at the meal lifted up his heel against me. It's in Psalm 49, 47, 47. Jesus said, it is one of the 12. One who dips bread into the bowl with me is an allusion to that passage in the Psalms. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man, it would be better for him if he had not been born. It does not say in the original or in English because he betrayed the Son of Man. I've told you before during these Wednesday night meditations, Peter denying that he even was a friend of Jesus is just as heinous. Judas' sin that condemned him was not the act of betrayal, it was the unbelief of the heart. It would be better for any person who does not believe in Jesus when they die if they had not been born. Including Judas, because he has no faith. And when Jesus says, the Son of Man will go just as it's prophesied about him, it leaves room for this thought that Judas could fall down on his knees in that room and say, I have already sold you as a, out as a friend and they're expecting me to turn you in. And Jesus says, the Son of Man will go just as it's been prophesied about him. But you can save your soul through your repentance and faith. But he didn't have faith. What an invited guest. I mentioned it earlier, but you hear Pastor Sager talk about being the only Packer fan in the Cowboys' uh, epicenter. <laughs> Imagine, the, remember I said Jerry Jones sits below? In the, him coming up there in the top when the game's last fourth quarter and they're about to lose, the Cowboys already goes, I hear there's a Packer fan in here! 
Who is he? Okay, so it's just in a sports emotional thing, but Judas is called out, and I hear there's a betrayer in here, and who is he? This is him. I know who he is. I want you to come. The disciples could not even believe it. John's gospel says that Jesus said to him, what you must do, go and do quickly. And Judas got up and left, and they thought he was going to give the gift to the poor that families did during the Passover at the time of the eating of the lamb at the end as part of their celebration of the Passover. They just couldn't fathom, even after Jesus had done and said all that. But Jesus was holding out his mercy and grace what an invite. But there's more. You're not Judas. If Jesus said to you tonight, one of you will betray me, you'd say, it, it, sh- surely it's not me. You're here on Monday, Thursday. You worship Jesus. You believe in him. You're not that. But neither are the other 11. But they still have an incredible invite because they're about to receive after all that Passover ceremony is over and there's still some wine and unleavened bread, they're about to receive the meal that eclipses the Passover and makes it obsolete. I still can see her face. She grew up a Jew. She was in our adult Bible class and we were doing lesson nine on the Lord's Supper and we looked at one of the gospel stories And I said, this was the Passover, and remember what the Passover was, and she told us what it was. And then I said, tonight you're going to learn that Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper, and it makes the Passover obsolete, and her face went white. She never in her life had been close to a Christian or Christian pastor that would say something so confident and so devastating to the culture of everything that she believed. But she came to faith over time. This is, to you and me, it's like, yeah, we're Christians. Yeah, we hear this every, this is big stuff. The disciples are about to hear of something very, much a lot bigger that they've, they've been hearing about, but they really didn't fully fathom until he rose from the dead. You know this. Here's what happens. Judas left, by the way, according to John 13. While they were eating, verse 22, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant. Other gospel writers say, he said, New covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Mark is a a very brief and quick writer. But what happened there is they passed that around and he's saying, take eat and take drink, was Jesus was giving them himself as the Passover lamb sacrificed. Later, the apostle Paul would call Jesus the Passover lamb. So with John, the, you know, earlier John the Baptist had said he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They took the bread and the wine without explanation. 
Just like the Lord says, I created the world in six days. I always say six nanoseconds, but he spread it out over six days. The Lord said, and there it was. Doesn't try to explain how. Baffles all scientists, right? Just like he says baptism saves. Doesn't say how. It says that he uses baptism to save. Just like he says I'm a father and a son and a Holy Spirit, three in one, three persons in one God. Doesn't explain how that can be. He gives us the Lord's Supper with the same expectation that because he says it's the body and blood of his own with the bread and wine that we would accept it by faith and move past trying to figure it out like some kind of sophomore toward taking in the meaning and the depth of the beautiful banquet that he's given us that the very God himself would give his body for us and to us that we could commune with him in closeness and with each other as we live in the grace and mercy that he gives us. It's supposed to be the most unifying meal on the planet. It's the greatest invite. It eclipses the Passover makes it obsolete and he says Luke tells us in this gospel and Paul tells us in Corinthians he says do this in remembrance of me not even telling us how infrequently we should do it and so we do it often my body is given for you it's a new covenant what's that about new covenant well there was an old covenant the mosaic covenant keep the law and you'll be my people in Jeremiah Hundreds of years after the old covenant was started, Jeremiah said, you broke the covenant, Jeremiah 31. There's coming a day when God will give us a new covenant, and this is what the basis of the covenant will be. This is Jeremiah 31. The forgiveness of sins, I will remember your sins no more. Now think of that. Remember Jesus telling the parable of the two sons? How the older son had such trouble that the father would forget the sins of the younger son who took half the inheritance? Couldn't get over that, right? But that's the basis of the covenant. You're my son, I forgive you. Your feet are always welcome under my table. You come home, you are home. And I will, you always have a home with me. There's always a place, come home. And so Jonah, understanding that, would pray to God in the Old Testament from the belly of a fish. He had no idea which way it was pointed, but he'd pray toward the forgiving temple. And now Jesus, the living temple, is in front of them and says, it's a new covenant. When he held up that cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, he was saying, I'm replacing the covenant of Exodus 24, the one that Jeremiah talked about. This is the new covenant, the covenant of grace. And then John's gospel makes more sense. He didn't say anything about the Lord's Supper. John said, 31 times that night, Jesus said, love one another. What is loving one another? It's first forgiving and not keeping track. And being welcome with each other because we're welcome with Jesus. And now you come back to what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper. This is why we teach our kids and our adults when they come through our catechesis classes. You don't come to the Lord's Supper holding a grudge. You don't come and defy the forgiveness of sins while you're mad at someone. 
you repent of that hard-heartedness and you forgive. You come looking for the grace that you share in unity. In the Lord's Supper, if you take it with faith, if you were struggling on your way up, on the way back, you're new and different. If you're believing it in faith, and if you spat it all the way to church, the trip home should be a lot more pleasant if you came to that table with a sincere heart because you came and received the forgiveness of sins that bind you together. I don't know. I've told this at the seminary when we talked to couples. I don't know if I've ever told it here. I think I did once. When our kids were little, um, it's a few years ago, uh, we had a spat on a Saturday night and went to bed against all wise judgment. I always get up early, come to church. I work here, right? I got to be ready to go. So I got up early, came to church. It's communion Sunday. I don't want to take communion having not rectified things with my wife. We always would commune at the beginning, right? You've seen us do it a hundred times. <laughs> she comes to the railing, kneels down beside me. I don't even want to take the Lord's Supper. We, can't, we haven't had a chance to talk. I'm sorry about last night. <clears throat> right here with your back, my back to you. <laughs> I'm sorry too. I forgive you. Let's take the Lord's Supper. The reason I share that is that's how real it is. That's the meal that you've, that you've been invited to. If you believe it, you will receive and practice the benefits of it. And that's what makes Monday Thursday such an important day on the calendar as we retell the story and we relive what it's about with understanding and meaning. What a great gift. Pastor Sager likes to tell how he was invited as a Packer fan to the Cowboy game with the owner. But you and I have been invited to the Lord's table. That's why we call it that. The Lord's Supper with understanding and meaning and purpose. And now you know why Paul, when he wrote the Corinthians, so let's look at that verse. Now you know why Paul was so adamant that they get it right. You know why? They weren't coming in faith as they should. They were coming to eat bread and drink wine, disregarding the Lord's body and blood. And then therefore they also weren't thinking in faith that it was about the forgiveness of their sins and that unifying meal that I'm trying to preach to you. And so they were not only losing the benefit, they were thumbing their nose at God. And so this is what Paul says. He says, So then, whenever you eat of that bread and drink of that cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And whoever does it in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of that bread and drink of that cup. That way they would not, they would not drink in, 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 on judgment on themselves without discerning the body of Christ and then drink judgment on themselves. You say, what? I thought it was a forgiveness meal. It is. But what if you trample on the forgiveness with a lack of faith? What if you walk out in the aisle and you come up here knowing you're living in sin and you plan to continue without any remorse? What if you plan to hold a grudge without any, you just think you have the right to do that? 
when you're coming to the forgiveness meal? What if you come up and, 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 and make light of the, the wine or the bread? It's irreverence. That's what 1 Corinthians 11 is talking about. Don't take the Lord's body and blood irreverently. So let's flip it. Let's take it reverently. So this is kind of what it's like. It's like one of you men or women making a, an exquisite chef-level Elsie Partey meal, doing it yourself or your family. And your family decides before they ever start to eat it that it's more fun to have a food fight with it than to eat it. Or they, half of them don't even show up because they'd really rather do something else that day. You know that feeling whenever you've made a beautiful meal and it just wasn't taken with the respect with which you meant it? That's Jesus when his own people would take the Lord's Supper without the reverence. He's not trying to scare us. He's just trying to talk sense into us that we would take it with the kind of motive that he intended when he gave it. The man died for us. He said, "I, I gave my body and blood for you. This is the biggest meal on the planet. Enjoy it, brag about it, and live in it the way you're supposed to. Amen.